0: All right, City Church and anybody joining us uh, today from outside of City Church, we're so thankful to have you. Uh, I hope this time can be encouraging, can fuel worship in your life. And uh, I I really, my hope is ultimately that you would hear from God in these moments, uh, from his word, uh, a message that he has for your heart. And so would you even take a few moments and just ask him to do that? You can push pause on this, um, but I just want to give you just a couple of moments uh, to ask God to speak to you today. Father, would you do that? Would you meet my friends um, in these moments? God, would you bridge uh, time, space, technology into living rooms, into cars, onto walks, uh, kitchens with family, by themselves, however it is that um, these moments are coming? God, would you meet would you meet people in that space holy spirit would you come into their hearts convince them of your great love for them in christ jesus once and for all finished and done on the cross uh, proven in the resurrection and um, god would you speak to would you speak to hearts today it's in Jesus' name i ask this amen okay so we are continuing on in uh this in studying this bc period in the bible the old testament and and the history of redemption that unfolds throughout it. And specifically, we're seeing how Jesus is the central figure in that history, even before we encounter him in the New New Testament, that Jesus is uh, the central uh, figure in that. And so last week, We said that in order to have a history of redemption, there has to be a need for redemption. That is, there must be corruption. But in order for there to be corruption, there has to be something to corrupt. And so creation precedes corruption, which precedes redemption. And so if we're going to study the history of redemption, we started back at creation. And we looked at Jesus' role in the creation of the universe and of human beings, the image bearers of God, and how Jesus's role in creation gives us hope for his ability to accomplish redemption on our behalf. So his role in creation gives us hope for his ability to accomplish redemption. And so now we're going to move on from creation to corruption. And, and it's important to see, uh, to study this component of cor- corruption. If we're going to look at and understand the history of redemption in the Old Testament, then we need to understand um, the brokenness or corruption of the world, because that will inevitably impact how you think it can be repaired or redeemed, how you expect it to be redeemed. And so our understanding of corruption influences our understanding uh, f- and need for redemption. And so I think about it like this, my daughter Lucy, she recently picked out a a toy for her baby doll and the toy was actually a piggy bank. And I thought the piggy bank was for normal piggy bank use, you know, uh, putting coins and money into the piggy bank uh, one day to cash that out and get something like a toy for her baby doll. But instead she just went straight for it. He is the toy, it's Pua from, uh, he's a character from Moana and uh, a a Disney movie. And uh, so that's my world. But uh, she, you know, carries Pua around with her baby doll, you know, because she's really kind like that and wants him to have um, a toy. And so I I looked at this and I said, this is not going to go well for Pua. He's glass. She's three. And lo and behold, just like a few days into, I don't even know, maybe it's a few hours into Pua's time with us as a family, he was you know, shattered all over the garage floor. But I looked at the shattering and it actually wasn't shattered completely. It was like just this fractured mess. But I thought to myself, I've got this. I looked at Pua or what was left of him, and I said, I can fix this. Uh, rather than going and buying a new Pua, I got out some Gorilla Glue, and I just went to work. Over the next few days, I glued and let it dry, glued and let it dry. And, you know, uh, next thing you know, Pua is back in action. And I actually think that this is sort of how, the, how, how people might look at in, uh, the, the brokenness of the world that we see. They might encounter the brokenness of the world and think to themselves, Uh, we can do this. We can fix this. And that's the worldview of progress that insists that as a human race, as a universe, that we are progressing towards something better and better. We are on an inevitable march towards greatness and goodness. That despite the bad things that are happening in this world, that we are making progress. We can fix this. And that's how H.G. Wells, the author of The War of the Worlds, felt in 1937. It's written really well. He said this, he said, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement, What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. It was written in 1937. That's a worldview of progress. But in 1946, H.G. Wells' worldview of, of progress came crumbling down, and look, here's how he says it. He says, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well nigh banished, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he is pleased to call himself, is played out. It's not even a decade later, It was a rough decade, but it wasn't even a decade later. And this is why our understanding of the source and the nature of corruption in our world is so critical. Because for Wells, like so many, the problem is just something that's out there, something that science or education can fix, which is why World War II had to be so demoralizing. The period of time after which he wrote that had to be so demoralizing to H. G. Wells, because Nazi Germany wasn't uneducated or lagging scientifically. They were leveraging the best and the brightest to wreak havoc on mankind. And so the reality is, is you could build your whole you could spend your whole life building something only for it to be used for evil purposes. Science, technology, and education have allowed us to accomplish amazing things as human beings. They're good things. These are good things. I mean, I think there's, there's people in outer space right now. I, they're at the space station, but the fact that people went 250,000 miles to the moon and back and lived is nuts. I mean, people have done crazy, amazing things. They're just not fixing what's broken. And so I did fix PUA. Okay, I, I, I kind of alluded to that, but I I worked I spent a lot of Gorilla Glue um, trying to get him back to a place where he was recognizable, and he is. You can kind of use him as a piggy bank still if you wanted to do that. You could probably also fit coins in other gaps because he's sort of like a Frankenstein looking pig now. Um, but what I know is that Poole will probably break again, he's fragile like it is with a lot of our repair efforts, they're ultimately pretty fragile. And when Pua breaks next time, it's most likely that all the king's horses and all the king's men will not be able to put Pua back together again. And the disorder and brokenness in our world, it's not just written into the laws of the land in a lot of countries. Brokenness in some laws that we can even look back on and say, "How how did that get written? Uh, It's written into the laws of the universe. Thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics states that entropy or disorder in an isolated system always increases. Always. It's a law of our universe. And so we need to understand the brokenness, the corruption of our world. Uh, And God's word speaks into that. It's not silent on this. It helps us understand the brokenness of our world and how we understand the origin of that brokenness will impact where we look for a solution, and the scriptures give us one. It doesn't give us a manual for how we can glue this thing back together, but instead it gives us God's plan for redemption, a plan that begins to be revealed not uh, in the New Testament, but in the first pages of the Old Testament. This is a quote about the book of Genesis. It says, as the first book of the Bible, Genesis stands as the unique book of beginnings, not only the beginning of humanity, but also the beginning of God's restorative work. And so we'll see this. The promise of redemption is as ancient as the curse of corruption. In Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see it. That's where we're going to be. So if you push pause if you need to grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 3. You should lay your eyes on it and see it for yourself. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. And we're going to see where corruption came from, what got corrupted, and how it's going to be redeemed. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so the first thing we see from here in in Genesis chapter 3. After, this is coming right after a marriage ceremony uh, where Adam and Eve are given to one another to become one flesh, living in a garden paradise where they have good jobs, relationships with God that are flourishing. All things are good. There is shalom in every direction of their life, okay? And then here comes corruption. And so where did it come from? It's, it starts, Genesis 3 starts out with this really interesting just words about a serpent, right? So it starts talking about this serpent. But what we begin to see is this is no ordinary snake. I already don't like snakes, but snakes that talk uh, are really problematic. And that's, this is unusual. It's not like, it's not like it was, just, you know, Narnian times where it's like, you know, there's an ox that's having a conversation with a tiger, you know, like it's, it's not like that. This was a mouthpiece of evil or the evil one himself, Satan, who, which means the accuser. And Satan, who, who Jesus explains, is the father of lies. And he is the one who lied to Eve in this moment. Do you see how subtly he trapped her in the belief that life could be found apart from God? He just went... I mean, at first, he kind of eases into it says did he really say you couldn't eat any of this stuff and she says no just not that because then we're going to die if we eat it and he says that's not true god is not to be trusted he's holding out on you you could be more like god than he already made you to be and so this is where corruption came from it didn't come from the fruit it came from the lie and it was planted in the hearts of a man and a woman in the garden and, and it's this heart-level sickness that, gets, that, that that is happening here. That's what got corrupted, which is the second thing we see. The first thing is, where did it come from? It came from a serpent through a lie in the garden. But where did it land? What actually got corrupted? And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, says this. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Their hearts got corrupted. Their souls and their worship got fractured in this moment. And then there's a cascading fracturing that comes from that. So, so a cascade of brokenness comes from this belief in a lie, an untruth that's spoken into the heart of Eve and then Adam. And he's there with her and he eats with her. And it says this in, in chapter 7, that you can begin to see the cascade of brokenness. Uh, verse 7 it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They had been previously uh, just in their birthday suits, no clothes, because they had nothing to hide. There's no need to conceal themselves. They were given to one another in perfect marriage, in relationship, one flesh, and then here in this moment, where do we see the brokenness begin, the fracturing begin, it's, it's with our relationship with one another. And this is not just a husband and wife thing, even though it's a definitely a husband and wife thing right here, but this is a fracturing of relationship between human beings. We now have something to hide, some way we need to dis- make distinctions between ourselves. And here's what's crazy is that this fracturing of relationship between uh, other human beings, uh, this, this is going to really quickly get violent and turn to murder. Genesis 4, so this is Genesis 3. Genesis 4 is a short walk east of Eden. You're going to find a grave for Abel because Cain killed him. The history of violence towards one another is ancient, and it's the result of a corrupting lie that fractured relationship with one another. I don't think there's any way to image bearers, could possibly kill each other before this fracturing of a lie entered in. And I think it's actually not the fracturing with one another that is uh, most readily leading to murder. It's actually the first fracturing that we, or the, other fra- the second fracturing we see between us and God. So look in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they already knew they were naked, they clothed themselves, and then they hear God coming and they hide themselves from him. Verse 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, our relationship with God got fractured then too. The very one we were made, you were designed to be in his presence. We we did a whole series on God's presence and how we're designed for that as a human being. That's what you are made, that's where you're made to be. And now the very place we're made to be, we're running from. The one that we were made to worship. Worship is what you trust and treasure above all things. And we are worshiping beings. But now our worship is distorted, fractured, set on anything in creation other than God. And so we can see now after this, the last fracturing. So I'm saying this is every direction, upwardly towards God, outwardly towards one another, and now downwardly uh, towards creation. Genesis 3, 17 and 18, it says, And Adam, and to Adam he said, because, of, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants uh, of the field. And so creation itself is corrupted. Their bodies are corrupted. They're, the, the, they're, they're going to be returning back to dust from the dust from which they were made. And, and all of this, these fractured relationships there's two results that I want you to see. So these relationships with God upwardly, outwardly towards one another, downwardly towards creation. Um, there's two results from this corruption I want you to key in on. Results that we still see today. The first one is shame. So this corruption has brought a... Uh, the, 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 what has happened in our hearts, the things that we have done in our hearts, and then with our hands, our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. These lead us to a place of shame where we want to hide ourselves, conceal ourselves, not be known by one another or by God. Shame, I'm tempted to be shameful all the time. There's a whisper of Uh, condemnation in my ears all the time. Today I was driving and I I was so, I was really stressed or kind of like tempted to be in this state of uh, disruption. And just all of a sudden I was like, where's this coming from? I just feel really this shame trying to come in on me. And the other one is pain. So shame and pain. And so we see pain. It says, God says there's going to be pain for women in childbirth. This, this is a, the reproduction of image bearers, which is an incredibly beautiful thing, and it's going to be now so very painful. And then work. Work is meant to give us purpose and dignity, and now it's going to be full of pain. And the ultimate result of all of this is death. That's what Romans 5 tells us. It says that sin spread because sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. Sin spread to everybody. It was in this first father of ours and then it spread to everybody. There's not a person, there's not a heart on the planet that sin hasn't uh, been, they, they haven't been born into this world with sin in their hearts. And because sin is there, death is there. And so it says, where sin spread to all people, death spread to all people. That's the ultimate result of our cre- uh, corruption. And the pain, see, the interesting thing, pain, not interesting, sad thing, the pain that Adam and Eve were going to feel as a result of this, it wasn't earning their way back to God, it was separating them further in death. And so we see this is where corruption begins, and this is what cre- corruption brings is fracturing. is a seed of evil planted in the hearts of mankind, but this is also where redemption begins. This is where corruption begins, and it's where redemption begins. Before God tells them, before in Genesis 3, when you read through it, before he even tells them of the pain that they're going to endure, of all of the tragedy that's going to unfold from this, which is, I mean, just a horrific thing. In God's mind, you have to know that he sees every funeral. He sees every hospital, ICU. He sees every um, horrific thing that was said or done to a person, uh, uh, to another image bearer. He sees all this unfolding over the course of time, but before he speaks about the pain of Adam and Eve that they would endure, that the curse that they and their children would live under, God tells our enemy something. Before he talks to Adam and Eve, he talks to the snake. Before he says what the full effect of the bad news of sin is, he whispers the good news of redemption, which is that a snake crusher is coming. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, before he talks to Adam and Eve about their pain, God says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is not just a thing between people and snakes, even though I have a thing against snakes. Uh, it is, he goes on, he says, He shall bruise the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so before they left the garden, God's going to send them from the garden. He told them that someone's going to be born from Eve, down her, from, from her line, from, from the, her kids and her kids and her kids. Somewhere, the seed of this woman, there's going to be somebody who's going to bring you back to this garden. And at first, it seems like two different seeds, seed of woman and seed of the serpent. But this is more personal than that. You see that it's someone born from the woman is going to do that work on the snake. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's personal with this snake. But the seed of the woman, so you you start reading through Genesis, and you're hoping, but you're like, if you're just reading for the first time, maybe it's going to be, you know, that's a really long book, and so it can't end that soon, but maybe it would be Noah, right? Noah's name is actually, the way that he's named is with this hope that maybe he would be somebody who could restore, or maybe it would be Abraham, or maybe it would be David, but you read the story and it's none of these. It's none of these seeds of the woman. Although they would all receive promises, covenants with God. They receive covenants that promise the same thing that someone was coming. Someone was coming who would crush the head of the snake and the seed is Jesus. We, if you, when you read this, we know this and I'm not, this is, you know, this should be obvious, but he's, the, he's the seed. In Second Corinthians 1:20 says, "For all the promises of God find their yes in Him." All of the covenants of God over and over again throughout time, they were promising that there would be somebody who would come to make things right again. And all of those promises find their yes in Jesus. That's why he came. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He came to crush the head of the snake. But how did he do it? Colossians 2, 13 through 15 explains how Jesus came to be the one to crush the head of the snake. And it says, starting in verse 13, it says, and you talking to us who were dead in your trespasses and in this uncircumcision of your flesh. Th- this is our state, the situation that we're in. We're not just going to you know, glue things back together and get it right, we're dead in our trespasses. Th- so those of us who are dead in our trespasses, all of us, God made alive together with him, those who have trusted in Jesus, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what we have in Genesis 3.15 is the Proto-Evangelium or the proto the first gospel proclamation, and the only one that would reverse the corruption in the world, the only one that would repair the fracture between us and God, the only one that could repair the, 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 the hostility between us and one another, and the only one who will one day make all things new again in creation the problems, the brokenness of the world today. You should know this. It is not new. It's as old as Genesis 3. But so is the solution jesus has always been the solution and he will only he will be the only solution god ever provides we won't find our way back to the garden we can't climb high enough we can't glue tight enough we can't make it new again this gospel of jesus his life death and resurrection for you once and for all it was the first gospel spoken and the only one that god has ever given And it's the only one that's needed. We can stand before God today without shame because Jesus has paid our debt in full. And so I wonder if you are, I mean, the, the, the snake's head has been crushed, but he's still whispering stuff into all of our heads and hearts, isn't he? Don't you experience that? He's still whispering shame and condemnation in your life. He's whispering that in the most subtle, distracting, awful kind of ways. He's telling you that shame is yours, that somehow you can't stand before God, or God doesn't want you in his presence, or God doesn't care about you, or the same stuff he was whispering in the garden. He's whispering that to you, but but God's word says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none left because it's been paid in full. And then we can stand alongside one another in peace because what Ephesians 2 says is that he's torn down the wall of hostility between races. He's talking about ethnic boundaries in Ephesians 2 that are really, really deep. They're as deep as white and black, if not deeper, between Jew and Gentile because they're a wall that says, hey, you can come to God and you cannot. And God says, you need Jesus to bring both of you to Him. And so don't make the gospel of Jesus secondary to the problems that we're facing today. It has the power to change hearts, and it's the only thing with that kind of power. Jesus is making all things new, but here's what we know they're not all new yet. You are a new creation. That's what 2 Corinthians says. It says, we don't regard anybody in the flesh anymore because if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. But we still live in creation that's subject to corruption. That's what Romans 8 talks about. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation can't wait for the veil to be torn back and to see who all the sons of God are who've trusted in Christ, become part of the family of God through the gospel. It says in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, it wasn't happy about it, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What he's saying is there's an expiration date on things expiring. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Don't you know, so so carbon dating is just the rate of decay. Corruption has been working its way out in, in creation and it's just groaning, waiting, waiting for the day that it's not going to be subjected to corruption anymore. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies because one day these things whether it's whether my body dies now or whether Jesus comes back first this thing's going to be a resurrection body and death cannot touch it decay cannot touch it it will not age it will not ache it will not break Verse 24, Romans 8, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't need hope anymore when you see it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what are we to do, church, in this moment where we live in a broken world? Yes, we have been made new through Jesus Christ and his gospel, and we are waiting. What do we do? He says eagerly, patiently wait for all things to be made new. And the way that we wait reflects how much we trust the, the, the promise that was made, the promise maker. I'm telling you, he is trustworthy. He promised us that a snake crusher would come, and he came. But I'm telling you, he's promising that he'll come back again, and this time there will be no bruising of his heel. There will will just be what Revelation 20.10 says that Jesus is going to do when he comes back next time. It says, and the devil who had deceived them will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's going to make an end of the snake. But what do we do now with all this while we're waiting? First, I think we cry, Maranatha. The last words of the New Testament, they, they, they don't say, okay, now get to work, you guys can do this, you got this on your own. It says, come, Lord Jesus, come, please, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm coming soon, I'm going to come fix this soon. But while we're waiting, we are busy while we're waiting. Because God's kingdom, it's this interesting thing where it's already but not yet. It's already here but not yet fully realized. And so we are advancing God's kingdom now. Because that's what, so, so I mean, how do we do that? We do that in people's lives, okay? In people's lives, God's kingdom is being advanced. That's what I think Jesus means in Matthew 28. That's what he means for us to do is advance his kingdom by making disciples. Because when we are making disciples, we're actually bringing about the re- restoration of the human soul restored back to God. And then we are free now to forgive and love one another. And then we're waiting for creation to be uh, restored fully. And so that, that this process of discipleship is not, not just, hey, Let me uh, teach you to do things um, and, and check some boxes. No, I want you to be restored back to God. Jesus, discipleship, meeting people where they are, leading them where Jesus wants them to go. And that's how we're doing this. And I, the picture that I get in my head is, is actually this one from the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe where Aslan, this Christ-like figure, he's died on the stone table uh, to, to reconcile, to pay for uh, the wrongdoing of this son of Adam. And he dies on the stone table. And while he's dead, there's this war that's raging where the witch um, who has thinks she has defeated uh, Aslan? She's 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 trying to take out all of Narnia and put it under back under her rule and under her reign. And she in the, in, while she's doing this, she's like kind of turning all these creatures to stone. That's like her special power. She just petrifies all of these creatures. And what happens is Aslan, he's resurrected. And when he's running to the battle line, when he's running to go finally defeat this witch, what he does is he starts breathing on all these creatures who have been turned to stone. And they also, they come to life. And you know what they do? Well, I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't just go walk off and say, hey, thanks, Aslan. I'm going to go back to whatever I was doing before I got petrified. No, they say, I'm in it with you now, Aslan. I'm going to follow you to the front lines, Aslan. I'm coming with you, Aslan, into the fray. And so we now are working in tandem with the Spirit, where we have been breathed on, restored, brought back to life, made a new creation again by the work of Jesus. Then we don't just say, hey, I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. We say, no, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, into the fray. And I'm telling you, people are getting breathed on, and it's happening. My own brother became my brother, okay? My own brother in in my blood became my brother in Christ this year, and it's like the greatest thing in my world. It's amazing, And so it's happening, church. Be a part of it. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It says, meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is Monday morning. A cleft has been opened in the pitiless walls of the world and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. So I'm telling you, church, let's be about what Jesus is about. Our corruption is deep and it is ancient, but so is the gospel don't give up on it. Don't settle for just our own progress. Let's follow Jesus into the fray this week, church. We have the only thing that can repair the brokenness of this world.